Well, what a great reminder that song is that um, whenever we open up this book, we see Christ. And uh, we sh- he shines forth in all of his glory. And I think that was the purpose of God's word is to uh, show us his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And Hannah was wearing that song out in the car and singing it over and over again. I said, when are you going to sing that before I preach? It's perfect. You know, it's through the preaching of the word. Show us Christ through the preaching of the word. And so she willingly did that. And, and uh, I, I always joked with Kelly that I married her so that I could have somebody to sing before I preached. And I never knew I'd get another one out of the deal. <laughs> now I got two who can sing before I preach. So what a blessing that, that uh, song is to our family. And I trust it was an encouragement to you this morning as well. But uh, we are going to have a great example this morning of how whenever you open up the scriptures, you see Christ. And uh, we have gotten used to seeing Christ in the book of Colossians. We have uh, just finished a series, a year-long series in that great letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, and it was all about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, and Christ was in every verse almost. And uh, it was just Christ here and Christ there and Christ everywhere, and, and, uh, and it's part of me didn't want to leave that. Um, but uh, whenever you do... Colossians, you've also got to do Philemon. Um, and if anything, it's just because all the commentaries I have on Colossians always tack Philemon on in the same commentary. In fact, I don't, ha- I don't own a, a commentary to my knowledge that's just Philemon. You always, if I go to look for Philemon, you've you got to look for the Colossian commentary, and they put it in there. They, it's a kind of a package deal. And so I felt it was appropriate, now that we have finished Colossians, just to immediately jump to Philemon, it's a, it's a brief little letter, one of Paul's, uh, in fact, Paul's shortest letter, uh, most personal letter, and uh, we should be able to get through it in just a few weeks, but um, I think it's uh, one of those little letters that could be easily overlooked. Uh, you just kind of read through it, if he even knew it was there, right? You're just going through the New Testament, and you go from First and Second Timothy to Titus, and, and you're looking for Hebrews, right? And you're like, what is this? There's just like... One page of what's Philemon, and I mean, oh, it's not, it must not be that important. It's not that big, you know. How'd, how'd that get in the canon, right? Uh, it's not even big enough, you know. It doesn't even deserve a place in the canon, right? It's so little. Um, but uh, you begin looking into it, as I have been this last week, and all of a sudden you see Christ and all of His glory, and like, where did that come from? I've never seen that before. And so I'm excited to just unpack this with you over the next few weeks and show you Christ. In this, as we've already hinted during our time of communion, that uh, this is more than just a story about two men uh, and the forgiveness, the exchange that took place between them. This is the, really a picture of the exchange that took place between Christ and God the Father on our behalf. When Christ said, as, in essence, charge that to my account. And so let's just read the first seven verses again of Philemon as we move into this series this morning. Uh, These are the verses we'll begin with. Uh, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Phi, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you, have toward, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. 
For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Father, we thank you for your word and the fact that every single word is inspired by your spirit and has a purpose. Lord, we know that this short little letter is in your word for a reason. And we want to know why. We want to know what it's all about. And so would your spirit please now illuminate us to understand what is here that you wanted us to know so that we could be who you want us to be. Lord, bless our study as we begin looking at this uh, beautiful little book. And I pray that you would bless us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar, if not all of you, with the French author Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables. And it may not be that you've ever read the book. I've never read the book, but I became familiar with the story through the movie. And maybe some of you have seen the Broadway production, the play, somewhere. It's one of the most famous plays, longest-running plays uh, in America, really around the world, in Europe and, and here in the States. But it's a, it's a truly a, a, an epic tale. Uh, it's, it's what's called historical fiction in that it was set in real-time France during the 1800s. And it tells the story of an ex-convict named Jean Valjean who seeks to reform his life but struggles to escape his dark past. And upon his release from prison after being there 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, by the way, to, to help his starving family... He's required to carry around this yellow passport that marks him as a prisoner, even though he's already paid his debt to society. And so naturally, no innkeepers want to take in that convict, and take in a convict, and so, so he has to sleep on the street, which makes him angry and bitter. Well, eventually, a benevolent bishop takes him in and gives him shelter, and in the middle of the night, Valjean steals the bishop's silverware and runs away. Well, he's caught by the police, and the police bring him back to the bishop, assuming that the bishop will press charges. And uh, of course, Valjean assumed the same thing and that he was on his way back to prison. And yet when he showed up at the bishop's door, the bishop rescues Valjean by claiming that the silverware was a gift that he had given him when he left from staying there. And at that point, he gives him two silver candlesticks as well. Well, his wife was not too happy about that, but he gave them away anyway, and he chastised Valjean in front of the police for leaving in such a rush that he forgot the two most valuable pieces. After the police left, the bishop challenges Valjean to use those two very valuable candlesticks to make an honest man of himself, and that's exactly what happened. Really, it's a story of redemption and Valjean becomes a wealthy businessman and, and the mayor of a small French town and is beloved by the townspeople for his kindness and generosity and he just tries to keep a, a real low profile until a fanatic police inspector named Javert is assigned to keep peace and order in his town. Now, this is where the plot thickens. Javert was a former guard at the prison where Valjean had been incarcerated those 19 years, and after witnessing him single-handedly lift a wagon off a peasant who was pinned underneath it, he recognizes Valjean, 
He remembers someone like him in the prison camps being able to do these great feats of strength, and so he became suspicious, and he ultimately denounces him to the French authorities. Well, Valjean admits to his true identity, and so Javert arrests him and intends to send him back to prison, but Valjean wouldn't have it, and so he escapes, and he becomes a fugitive who must live in hiding to avoid the ruthless and relentless pursuit of Javert, whose life really becomes obsessed with catching him and bringing him to justice. And towards the end of the story, Valjean has a chance to kill Javert and rid himself of of this this merciless man and, and live a life of peace and safety and rest. And yet he lets him go. He has a merciful heart and he really demonstrates a forgiving heart towards Javert, even though he knows that uh, he knows where he lives and that it's only a matter of time before he will come again and arrest him because he will stop at nothing to put Valjean back in prison. Well, he eventually does arrest him and the story takes a surprising, even shocking turn when Javert, overcome with his own guilt because of his intolerance and his own injustice, he releases Valjean, he, he takes the chains off of him and he puts them on himself And then he falls backwards into a river in order to commit suicide. And I think Javert's character really epitomizes the person who bitterly refuses to forgive others and consequently destroys his own life. While Valjean was the fugitive in the story, Javert was the true prisoner. He was enslaved to bitterness and to malice. And we know Les Miserables as this epic portrayal of really the difference between forgiveness and and bitterness and where those two things lead. Well, there's a very similar story, another epic type story uh, of a fugitive needing forgiveness. Well, we find it here in the book of Philemon. This is a biblical account, obviously, set in the city, a city in ancient Asia Minor during the first century, and it tells the story of a fugitive slave named Onesimus who stole from his master Philemon, and he escaped to Rome hoping to blend in to that crowded metropolis. Now, Onesimus likely endured a very miserable existence. You can imagine uh, what would happen to a slave trying to, to live undercover in, in that great city, probably living in squalor in the dark underworld of, of Rome and dodging bounty hunters who made a living tracking down runaway slaves and returning them to their masters for pay. Well, in the providence of God, Onesimus came into contact with the Apostle Paul who was there in Rome under house arrest. Now, we don't know what brought them together. It could have been that that uh, Onesimus, similar to the prodigal son, had hit rock bottom, rock, rock bottom, didn't know where else to turn, and he sought out the man who he had heard so much about through his master, his master Philemon, who, who Paul had led to Christ. And so I'm sure the name of Paul was known well uh, there in, in, in Philemon's home, and especially in light of the fact that they had church there and everyone was familiar with the Apostle Paul, and so he had heard of this Apostle Paul, and so it may be that he searched him out in Rome. However it happened, Paul led Onesimus to Christ and began discipling him while he ministered to Paul's needs in prison. 
And even though Paul wanted to keep Onesimus with him, he was very useful to him, and, and surely Onesimus didn't want to didn't go back to Colossae and, and face the music there. They both knew, however, that he had to go home and make things right with his master. Well, in those days, there were some severe consequences for runaway slaves who were captured and, and returned to their masters, especially those who had stolen from them. Probably the most minor consequence, it doesn't sound minor, but it's, it's better than get your head taken off, you get your forehead branded with an F. They just put an F on your forehead for fugitive. Or CF, they would put a C and an F, which stood for beware of thief in that language. And so you could have this permanent brand on your forehead that you'd be branded as a runaway, as a fugitive, you'd be branded as a, as a thief. Or worse, you could be executed. You could be actually crucified. I came across an interesting account, a historical account, an actual account of a close contemporary of Philemon. It happened in the same general time period. There was a wealthy slave owner, Roman slave owner, named Padanus Secundus, and he was murdered by one of his 400 slaves. And of course, that Slave went to trial, and during the trial, the prosecution argued for the execution of all 400 of the guy's slaves. Sounds extreme, but the judge agreed, and the 400 slaves were publicly executed as an example to other slaves of what happens when you rebel. This was the day and age in which Onesimus was living. Well, even though Onesimus knew that there could be some severe consequences, he knew it was the right thing to do to turn himself in and to seek to make restitution no matter the consequences that he might face. There have been times when I've counseled people that have just recently come to Christ and uh, they were living a life of sin and, and uh, now that they've come to Christ, they, they, they want to make those things right and, and, and in fact, they were even doing some things illegal. And, and so they come and say, what do I do now? And my advice is always, listen, if you know that you have broken the law, you need to go turn yourself in. You just need to turn yourself in. And you need to trust God that he's going to vindicate you for your honesty and your integrity. And it may be that you do have to suffer the consequences. And there may be some punishment that you have to go through. But you can do it and endure those consequences and endure that punishment for the glory of God. And you can know that you did the right thing. To, 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 to speak the truth and to be honest. And so that's, I think, the, the, the stance that Paul told Onesimus. He needed to go back and face the music. No matter what the consequences, you need to go back and do the right thing. Now, the good news is Onesimus had something going for him because in that day, under Roman law, there was a thing called the Advocacy Clause. And runaway slaves could return to their masters and be protected if they first went to their master's friend and that friend became an advocate for that slave. And that, that friend would appeal to the slave owner to be gracious and to be understanding. And so by writing this letter to Philemon, Paul was serving as Onesimus' advocate, his mediator. And, and this letter really is his way of interceding on his behalf. We were introduced to Onesimus last week as we finished up the book of Colossians. If you remember, he was one of 10 comrades that Paul mentioned there in the conclusion of, uh, of Colossians. And in chapter 4, verse 9, he says 
Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. In other words, he was from Colossae. And by the way, that's the connection uh, between the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, because as we read already, Philemon was uh, the host of the church in his city. And you say, well, what city was that? Well, if he was the owner of Onesimus and Onesimus was from Colossae, you can conclude, right, that he was the host of the church of Colossae. So there's the connection, and that's why these two books have been inseparably linked. Well, he said in in, uh, Colossians that he was to accompany another one of Paul's co-workers named Tychicus, who Paul had entrusted with the responsibility of delivering his letter to the Colossian church. And so how natural would it be to send Onesimus with Tychicus with his own letter, this this letter written, this personal letter written to his his master, uh, Philemon. And so this was a a great opportunity for them to go together and travel together. In fact, some of it was for Onesimus' own protection because you didn't want to be a runaway slave traveling by yourself back to your master. Think of when you got caught by those bounty hunters and said, oh, I'm I'm going back. I'm I'm on my way back. They're like, yeah, right, you're coming with us, right? We're going to get the money for you. And so it was helpful to have that accountability and that that protection of traveling with Tychicus. But in this letter, as we're going to see, Paul appealed to Philemon to receive Onesimus with open arms, just as if he was Paul himself. In other words, welcome him back just like he was me, just like you would me. In fact, You need to because he's no longer your slave. He's your brother in Christ. And so he's writing to inform him that, guess what? Yeah, your slave was a knucklehead. He was a useless, good-for-nothing guy, stole from you, ran away. But guess what? He's come to Christ. He's our brother now. And we need to forgive him and restore him. In fact, Paul even offered to pay for whatever Onesimus owed Well, if you haven't seen the uh, outline yet in your bulletin, I want to encourage you to take it out right now. You know, I always try to do a little outline just to kind of give us the big picture of a book, a book. And so it's very simple. We've chosen to call this book Forgiving the Fugitive, Forgiving the Fugitive. And I just summarized the theme here. Written during his first imprisonment in Rome, Paul's postcard to Philemon is the shortest and perhaps the most personal of all his letters. It's a masterpiece of tact and diplomacy in dealing with the delicate social issue of human slavery. Onesimus, a slave of Philemon, had stolen from his master and ran away to Rome where he came in contact with Paul who led him to Christ. As a believer, it was Onesimus' responsibility to return to his master Philemon and seek his forgiveness and make restitution. Paul sent this letter to him, urging Philemon to forgive his new brother in Christ and informing him that he would personally pay any debt Onesimus owed. Now, don't miss this last sentence, because this is where the book of Philemon snuck up on me, and I hope it sneaks up on you as well. Paul's intercession and imputation, which again means the charging of somebody's debt on your account, right? Paul's intercession and imputation on behalf of Onesimus is a beautiful and powerful picture of Christ's intercession and imputation on our behalf by paying the debt we owe as rebellious sinners who have run away from God. Bottom line of this book is that we're all Onesimuses. Martin Luther said that in his commentary. He said, we're all Onesimus. 
We, we need to see ourselves in this book. We are Onesimus. And we see the, really the, the key uh, really that unlocks the meaning of this little letter is found in verses 15 through 18. Again, look what it says. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Some have titled this book From, brother, from Bondage to Brotherhood. It's a great title. Especially to me, verse 16, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Underline that, star that, circle that, there's Christ. And so we break this little letter down into three sections. It's really simple. Paul's praise of Philemon, that's how it starts. Verses 1 through 7. And then we see Paul's plea to Philemon in verses 8 through 17. And then thirdly, we see Paul's pledge to Philemon in verses 18 to 25. Notice how I've emphasized Paul's praise, Paul's plea, and Paul's pledge. Because some, believe it or not, deny that Paul wrote this book. And I'll just be honest with you. When I'm going along in a commentary and we get to the section of the author and who wrote it, and I start to... Start to read somebody, start telling me why they don't think Paul wrote something, right? And give me all these other reasons. I, I, I press fast forward. I'm like, poop. I don't need to read that. That's ridiculous. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And guess what? It's in my Bible. That's good enough for me. If the Spirit of God not only inspired the scriptures, he preserved the scriptures, right? So I don't want to hear all these arguments why you think that. Paul possibly couldn't be the author of this book because it lacks the doctrinal content of all of his other letters, and that's basically what they say. There's no doctrine in this letter. So surely, come on, Paul just got done writing Ephesians and Colossians, or excuse me, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, right? And then here's the redheaded stepchild, if you will, right? Philemon. I mean, these are the prison epistles. You got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Right? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, some of the greatest letters Paul ever penned, rich with doctrine, theology all over the place. And you get to Philemon, you're like, what is this? And so they're like, surely Paul couldn't have written this. Well, there are some insightful things, by the way, in those sections where they're talking about who wrote it. And I appreciated the, the, the emphasis of the commentaries that I was reading is that, it, that, that the point here is, is this is Paul clearly in, in a unique form in that, it, that he's applying and illustrating the doctrine that he taught in all the other letters. You've got all this doctrine in Ephesians and, and Philippians and Colossians and, and then we see it fleshed out in a real life situation between two brothers in Christ. And so all the things that he taught um, particularly what he taught about forgiveness in the other prison epistles. And you'll remember back in, uh, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you, have sealed, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Javert could have used that verse, Right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And then Paul says virtually the same thing in Colossians. You'll remember Colossians 3, 12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Listen, if you are a child of God, you are, you are chosen by him, you're holy, you're, you're loved by him, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's theology of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, that's the theology of forgiveness. That's the instruction, right? That's telling us what we're supposed to do. Guess what? He shows us how to do it in Philemon. That's the illustration of how to do those, how to live out those verses. If you read the the latest newsletter, you may have gotten the mail yesterday. If you didn't, you'll probably get it on Monday. But I wrote a little article there highlighting that book that we're going to read this summer and and the importance of reading biographies. And, and uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, re- said something I think is very profound in the introduction to the life and diary of David Brainerd. Jonathan Edwards had been very impressed with this young man, a missionary to the American Indians, who was uh, basically dating his daughter, engaged to be married to his daughter when he got tuberculosis and ended up dying before the wedding ever took place. But he was so impressed with this young man's passion for Christ and particularly his prayer life. He said, hey, do you mind if I publish your diaries, which are really his prayer journals? And, and David Brainer was like, you gotta be kidding me. That, that's not for, for wide-scale consumption. That's my relationship with the Lord. I don't want that all over the place, right? And Jonathan Edwards convinced him that, he, that those needed to be published. And what he said at the beginning of, that, of, of, of the introduction of the life and diary of David Brainer, he said that God has two ways of presenting true religion and challenging us to live it out. He said, throughout the history of the church, God has not only raised up powerful preachers to teach the word, but he's also raised up powerful examples to show us how to live out what is taught in his word. And he said, David Brainerd was one of those examples. We know we're supposed to pray. David Brainerd shows us how to do it. We know we're supposed to have a passion for the lost. David Brainerd shows us what that looks like. And so he, Jonathan Edward wanted to expose as many people as possible to, to the example of uh, uh, David Brainerd. And I believe that the Spirit of God wanted to expose as many people as possible to the example of Philemon. In fact, we're going to see here that, that while this was a personal letter, uh, it, Paul addressed it also to the church. So this was not something that, that Philemon was going to read by candlelight in, in, the, in the confines of his, in the privacy of his own bedroom. This was something that was going to be read to the whole church. And so this was a public matter. And so the fact that the Spirit of God preserved this letter for us is he wanted us, he wanted this to go public. He wanted all of us to see the example that is given here of how to forgive. And really, it's a powerful example, really a profound analogy of the doctrine of forgiveness, namely how we should forgive others, first and foremost, but also how we're forgiven in Christ. And by the way, you can't forgive others unless you've been forgiven by Christ. Our ability to forgive others is is based on, is founded on the fact that we've been forgiven. And so we see this in this book of Philemon, and really it expands, Philemon expands on what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer about praying 
that God would forgive us our debts as we, what? Forgive our debtors, right? Matthew chapter uh, 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Remember, we studied this a while ago. But it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we said when we were studying through the the, uh, uh, Lord's Prayer that that's the only phrase that Jesus felt there needed to be some expansion. Okay, every other phrase, he just says it and moves on. But it's as if there was a a little asterisk, and maybe you want to put that in your Bible, in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Because in verses 14 and 15, he expands on what that means. And this is not part of the Lord's Prayer. It's more like an appendix to the Lord's Prayer. And he says in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now again, Jesus wasn't saying that God's forgiveness of us hinges on our forgiveness of others. No, our forgiveness of others hinges on God's forgiveness of us. We don't receive forgiveness because we forgive others. We forgive others because we've received forgiveness. And there's no one who who should understand forgiveness better than those who've been forgiven. Guess who that is? That's you. That's me. It's believers. I love that old bumper sticker. I haven't seen it around for a while, but it just simply said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Remember that one? Because everybody's, you know, the world's like, oh, you guys are just a bunch of goody two-shoes and you're perfect and, you, you know, you don't, no, listen, we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. And you can be too, right? But as Christians, we're, we're forgiven people. We, we know what it's like to be forgiven. Even when we don't deserve it. That's grace, by the way, right? Unearned undeserved kindness and favor of God, his forgiveness that he offers us. And and we don't just need it once. We need it, what, all the time. And yes, there's there's an initial forgiveness when we repent of our sin and we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. There's a forgiveness of every sin we ever did commit and every sin we would commit, right? But there's also that daily, ongoing, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's this ongoing need to stay in fellowship with Christ. And so we know forgiveness, right? It's like Bo knows whatever, right? Remember that guy, Bo Jackson? He knew everything. He could do anything, right? Listen, we know forgiveness. We know it. We've experienced it. And we, we continue to experience it on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And yet even though we, we need to be forgiven all the time, why is it that we struggle when it comes to forgiving other people? I mean, listen, I'm Bible college, seminary, doctor boy guy, okay? You think I would have that down, right? Listen, I still struggle sometimes with forgiving people. And, and uh, thankfully, it seems more confined to my family than anywhere else, which may not be a good thing, but 
I'm glad it's confined to one place anyway. It's not like all of you guys are a bunch of knuckles. I'm having a hard time with you and I'm having a hard time with you. It's not like that at all. But, but there's just on occasion, you know, my wife and I will get sideways with one another and we'll be, you know, driving down the road and it's just, uh, there's just some tension there and, and uh, you know, we're just at odds with one another and we're sharing some thoughts and some words and, and, uh, and they may not be in the most godly way. We're not at our best, however you want to say it, right? We're sinning, okay? And, uh, and, and so our goal is to beat one another to confess, Right? One of us has got to, you know, be the mature one and say, you know what? I'm totally wrong right now. I'm totally not talking to you in a godly way. I totally didn't treat you. I should have never said that. I should have never done that. Right? Somebody's got to start. Somebody's got to say, you know what? Time out. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Would you please forgive me? We have that conversation on a, on a pretty regular basis because we're, we're sinning against each other regularly. There's some times when Kelly will beat me to the punch and she'll say, you know what, honey, I'm sorry, I, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I was disrespectful. I didn't honor you. Would you forgive me for saying those things or with that tone of voice? And I'm thinking, why did you have to do that? I was just getting going here. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure I want to forgive you right yet because I got a few more things I want to say to you. Because, you know, you got me going here and I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, and, and, right? And so I'm like, well, yeah, hold that thought, and, right? And I'm going to chew on her a little bit longer and then say, yeah, I forgive you, right? <laughs> well, what is up with that? Listen, forgiveness does not come naturally to any one of us. But ultimately, forgiveness is based on the character of the forgiver. And that's what we're going to see in the opening verses of, of Philemon. As he opens this letter to his friend, his dear comrade, he expresses his confidence that Philemon would receive Onesimus back. He would forgive him based on his spiritual character. I mean, Paul has high hopes. And we just see how he thanks God for this man and, and his, his integrity and his maturity in Christ, and his reputation of love and faithfulness, and, and his commitment to fellowship, and the way he's been such a blessing and a refreshment to so many people in that church. And so before Paul ever raises this delicate subject of Onesimus, I'm sure, you know, when Onesimus, not knowing what had happened to him, if you said Onesimus to Philemon, that was not going to go real well. That would just like turn the conversation south really fast. It's Onesimus, like good for nothing, lying, stealing, thieving, runaway slave, right? I'll never see him again. He's somewhere absorbed in Rome and, and, and so maybe just made the back of his, you know, the hair on the back of his neck bristle. And, 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 and so before he ever mentions the guy's name, Paul builds this rapport with Philemon by encouraging him with him, what, by encouraging him by what he had heard about his character, probably through um, Epaphras, right, who had come, who was the pastor, the founding pastor uh, of the church there, and he had come to Rome and, and was concerned about the false teaching, and he probably told him all about Philemon. And so he was telling him about how thankful he was to hear uh, how he had grown in Christ, this man he had led to Christ, and how he was growing. And, and basically what he's going to do here is he's, he's just calling him to maintain the high standard that he was already known for. 
One commentator just said it this way, the the virtuous character of Philemon becomes the foundation upon which Paul bases his appeal for him to forgive Onesimus. By the way, we can learn something by how Paul kind of wades into this very tricky situation. He doesn't just, you know, show up, you know, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul, bull in a china shop, start snapping his fingers, expecting guys to jump and do whatever he tells them to do. He could have done that. But he doesn't show up at all with that demeanor. He, he, he approaches him as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He takes a very humble, gracious approach. And he's very delicate. He's very winsome. He's very tactful. And we can, again, we can learn. Uh, we, we said a couple weeks ago, sometimes our, our confrontations are more like drive-by shootings, right, than they are life-giving reproof. And so, you know, somebody told me one time, I'll never forget, I thought it's a great analogy is whenever you need to admonish someone or correct someone or confront someone, just think of an Oreo cookie. You're like, Oreo cookie? That sounds good right now. I'm hungry, right? Oreo cookie. Uh, but you got two chocolate cookies and you got the stuff in the middle, right? And so you always come at it. At first, you encourage, you build up, you appreciate. You don't flatter. You genuinely show, point out evidences of grace in that person's life. And then you bring the confrontation, the admonition, the encouragement, the challenge, whatever it is you need to address. And don't just leave them there filleted on the floor, right? Faithful, faithful to the wounds of a friend. Have fun licking your wounds, right? No, you, you minister to that guy or that gal and you, you, you end with that encouragement and, and, and reaffirmation of your love and, 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 and pointing out again of the, the evidences of God's grace. And so you, you kind of put it together, right? Encourage, confront, encourage. And, and we're gonna see that pattern here in Philemon. But just a couple of things, just as we close this morning and we really haven't even got into the text yet, but just a couple of things, and I just want to front load this because I think there's some, some really practical application for us. And the first thing I think of is, listen, if, if Paul was having to write a letter to you, could he have written it this way? Well, would he have had the same confidence that, that you were going to do it? Whatever he asked, you were going to do because your reputation preceded you. How about like real life, okay? Forget the Apostle Paul. How about somebody has to come and talk to you about something that's difficult? They have to have a difficult conversation with you. It's not going to be an easy conversation. It's going to be a hard talk, okay? Are they dreading that talk? Because they're not sure how you're going to respond. Because in the past, you know, you've been really easily offended. You've been, you got your feelings hurt. You blew up. You took off. You left. Right? I mean, some of you have that dynamic in your marriage. You're scared to death to talk to your, it's like you're walking on eggshells, tiptoeing through the tulips when you're talking to your wife or you're talking to your husband because they just, right? Well, part of that, who, whose fault is that, right? We, hopefully, we would be the kind of people that like, you know, I'm looking forward to have this conversation because I know that this person is a godly person. That how, no matter what's said or done, they're going to walk out with smiles in her face and arm in arm, right? Even though it was hard and hurtful. Why? Because they're mature. They're spiritually mature and they know how to have a difficult conversation and they, they respond in, in godly ways and, and, and they have genuine love and, and faith and they're committed to unity and, and they're committed to uh, the fellowship, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so, you know what? It's, it's like be the kind of person, 
like Philemon, that people look forward to having tough conversations with you. Because they know you're going to be humble and teachable and open and receptive and not go speak to the hand. I'm not interested in talking to you about this. Or you're wrong. And let me point out some sin in your life, right? But just take it. Take it like a Philemon, right? But why? Because your reputation precedes you. Oh, that we would all be like this, right? It'd be so, make, it would make life so much easier if we were these kinds of husbands and wives and, and children and parents and wherever the rebuke had to come from, right? That, that there would be no concern. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to have that conversation because it's going to go good. Because I respect that person and their maturity in Christ. The other thing I think about is this forgiveness stuff, really, it, the bottom line, the rubber meets the road, this is all about your maturity in Christ. One of, the, one of the most accurate barometers of where you're at on the maturity scale in Christ is how quickly and easily you forgive. Now, come on, we all struggle with forgiving, okay? Again, it doesn't come naturally. It's ultimately a gift from God. But I would just say this, the quicker and the easier it is for you to forgive, the more mature you are in Christ. That's an indication that's an evidence that you are mature in Christ. Listen, if you are real petty and you are real bitter and you hold grudges and you keep people at arm's length and you let days and weeks and months go by without making things right with your spouse or family members or church members, you are an immature Christian. I'm just saying. <laughs> it, it, that's just what it comes down to. And so we're going to have an opportunity to really have our maturity level checked and tested and hopefully all of us will grow in our ability to forgive as we examine the life of Philemon and Paul's counsel and instruction to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just your word and how every portion is there for a reason. And Lord, we need to learn how to forgive. Lord, you tell us um, over and over in your word that we should forgive others even as, as you have forgiven us in Christ. And Lord, we know that, and yet sometimes it's hard to do that. And, and thank you for giving us an example, uh, this, this book, this letter to Philemon that is going to help us, going to show us, going to model for us, going to exemplify and illustrate for us what, how to do that. And so bless our study, Father. Even now, I pray that if there's anyone here holding a grudge or, or, or withholding forgiveness from a, a spouse or a, a brother or a sister or a fellow believer in this church, Lord, that you would begin convicting them, Lord, of how immature that is, how petty that is, how dishonoring to Christ that is, and how that's affecting the unity of that family and that home and this church, and that they would begin working through that, and that you would grant them the ability to forgive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.